Welcome to the Shepherd's Pie, a slice of hope to raise faithful kids, where we focus on topics that impact young people today. I'm Antony Barone Kolenk. I'm a father of five who served in the Air Force for 21 years. I'm now a law professor and a columnist for Practical Homeschooling Magazine. I'm also the author of The Harwood Mysteries, an inspirational medieval fiction series for kids aged 10 and up. Here on The Shepherd's Pie, we want to inform, inspire, and help you to raise happy, healthy, faithful kids, whether you're a teacher, a parent, a youth pastor, anyone. In today's episode, we discuss the impact of technology on our kids. My guest is Thomas Nastic, an author and systems architect who discusses the promise and the pitfalls of technology and how it can impact our kids. And in the entertainment segment of the show, I review the dystopian young adult novel, The Light, by Jacqueline Brown. So much of our lives revolve around technology today, whether it's social media and the internet, we do our purchases on Amazon and other online sellers, we check the weather, we have Alexa turn on our lights, our kids are playing virtual reality games, And the technology is increasing at breakneck speed with improvements in technology coming faster than we can even process. But what does all this mean for our kids? How does technology impact our kids? We can sometimes see the negative side of technology with our kids, whether it's the addictions to TikTok or the bullying on Facebook. But what about the positive aspects of technology? Could playing video games be something good for our kids? Is there a promise to technology that we really need to embrace? Well, my guest today, Thomas Nastek, is very familiar with technology. Not only is he a systems architect, he's somebody who has studied the history of technology and has thought long and hard about some of these issues and how technology should interact with humanity. And he's also written a book series addressing some of these same concepts. And we'll discuss the importance of technology in our lives and the impact of technology on our youth. Today I have Thomas Nastic on the show. He has made a career in technology as a systems architect. He wrote a series of novels known as the Penury City Trilogy, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Thomas is a technology expert. He lives in upstate New York with his wife and son. Thomas, it's wonderful having you on the show today. Thank you, Tony. I'm really grateful for you to have me on. So a systems architect, uh, for those of us who are not technology nerds, what does that mean? A systems architect is, is the person who, if you think about an architect for a house, right? So a technology systems architect is basically the same principle as we take into consideration all of the various things in technology, the people who are working on the technology, also the innovation of technology itself, bringing in all these different components, whether they be networking components, databasing components, all those different things, just trying to bring them all together and then try to build systems that you can reuse later on. You know, when we talk about technology, especially when we talk about in the context of our young people today, 
we see that technology so much drives you know what they do with their lives you know video gaming and whatever else and i know you've you've mentioned in the past you know the hope of technology that started even in the 1939 world's fair it was that the big moment in in technology history the 1939 world's fair it's definitely a pivotal moment it was called the world of tomorrow the world's fair so they were already looking towards well what is all of this engineering and technology and innovations, where are we going? Where is it heading? So that World's Fair was April 30th, 1939 through October 27th, 1940. So we're talking like right at the start of World War II and also the first practical TV, there was only one station and it was the station in New York had the only broadcasting station. So they were displaying the first TV at the World's Fair. But what the promise of technology was, um, the engineers were saying that we would be able to automate our homes we'd be able to automate our workplaces. And because of this automation, the mundane tasks of life and work could be done through this automation, which would free up our time so that we could have more time to spend with our families and our friends to be out in nature. So that was the promise. And even travel, we would have easy and quick travel from you know anywhere in the world with our jetpacks and these transporters and all these things. I think they even had like a mechanical robot at the World's Fair. They introduced the public to all these great ideas, these great innovations. And of course, World War II started, it took us out of where the technology was supposed to go. We started working on military type things of technology, but that was the promise. And I think somewhere along the line, we've lost that vision of what the technology was supposed to give us. It's interesting because you think about 1939 and how long ago that was, when you think about it today... It almost sounds like the 21st century finally started delivering. Uh, you know, this morning I walked down the stairs and told Alexa to turn on my lights. You know, it sounds like we've got some of the promise finally coming true, although I don't fly around with a jetpack yet. But, but you're saying that you think it might have gone wrong. And especially with when it comes to our youth, aren't these good things? Our youth now can have so much, you know, leisure time to uh, work on other things. Everything has good effects and, and bad effects to it. And we just have to be careful to know what those are. And so the good things, as you said, is we, we do have more leisure time. And one of the things that kids are doing with technology today, you know, they play a lot of computer games and games are good. Um, psychologically, games are very good because what they teach children is that it teaches them how to um, not only win well, but also lose well, because life is really, it has that whole gaming phenomena to it, where in order to work with other people, you have to be able to work well with people. So the game of life is really, can you play the game well with others? Do you always have to win or can you lose well with others? And then can you work you know, on teams with others? So gaming teaches our children those things, those concepts. Well, if, if I'm a sore loser or I get mad or angry, other people will stop playing with me. Or if I'm a bad winner and I gloat <laughs> and say how great I am and I'm not humble in my winnings, will other people still play with me? So it teaches children those concepts and helps them to prepare themselves for how we have to you know, take care of things in, in life. So those are good things. So some of the negative things, though, one of the things that I think we lost with technology is that a lot of the gaming things children are playing without their parents. I mean, some parents are really into games and that's good because then they can play the games with their children. 
but usually between generations, either the parents don't like the same games <laughs> as the children, or so, so they're not always involved in playing games with their children to help them from a parent's point of view and teach them how to win well and how to lose well. I think as, as, as the adults and as parents, even if we don't like our children's games, that's the sacrifice that we have to make is we'll play them anyway. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, because uh, I know you have a son. Um, I have uh, four daughters and one son. But when my son was a teenager, I used to play some of those kind of fighting games with him also. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And it was it, it was kind of a time of bonding. But there's also a lot of violence in those games, too. Where are parents, you know, how are they supposed to navigate between, well, I'm trying to play the game that my, my son or daughter really like, but maybe I don't really appreciate the amount of gore and, you know, anything else. Now, how are parents supposed to navigate those issues? I mean, that's a tough one, right? I mean, when we were kids, we had, we would watch, you know, the Westerns, there was always a certain amount of, of violence with those as well. And I think one of the concepts that we learned is try to be the hero. Back then on TV, there wasn't the blood and the gore and the such the detail that the games and TV has today. But I think one of the, the concepts, though, that is good is, you know, be the hero, don't be the victim. And I think a lot of times today is many people feel victimized about so many things. And there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world. You know, try to be the hero. Try to bear your suffering and your pain. You know, Catholics say carry the cross. You know, carry your cross and, and then go help somebody else. Be their hero try to help them pick them up, help them carry their cross as well. If you're a parent or a teacher and you're working with teenagers or young, younger kids today, you know, what do you see are some of the promises in the current technology and maybe what's coming down the pike? You know, maybe let's talk about some of the good things and then we can also look at some of the areas of concern. There's a lot of technology out there. And one of the things that I, I find fascinating with uh, when I'm talking with kids today is that just how smart they are and they're just so quick to pick things up. They're just these great sponges that they just absorb knowledge so easily. I'm a sponge too, but my sponge is old and is full and it's leaking things out now. <laughs> but they're just absorbing so much and, and so quickly. And one of the things I think is that with the technology today, it's driving more towards a lot of the virtualized, the VR, the virtual reality and, and manipulating of environments. One of the cool things that is, is if you remember Iron Man, when he was designing and he was able to manipulate his environment and bring in all kinds of different things, the innovation factor of that is amazing. One of the hardest things to do is be able to visualize technology and problem solving and solutions to be able to build something that can solve those problems. And that's where I think the kids today using that kind of technology, they could solve some of the hardest problems that we face in our world today. The downside of that is because these type of environments can create these secondary worlds. I think people tend to live too much in the virtual world and not enough in the physical world. So I think that would be one of the dangers is to be caught up too much in that, that virtualized world and forget about the physical world. Yeah, and that, that is one of the things that I worry about, too. And my, my son actually still works in video gaming, and I know he's designed some virtual reality games, which are super cool. But as the technology gets to the point where our kids can experience, not just in their vision, but in all of their senses, the world around them, I do worry a little bit that, as you mentioned, they might get so absorbed in these virtual worlds that they're going to detach from the real world. I mean, is there is there something parents can do to try to navigate that problem? 
unplug them. <laughs> one of the things that I've, so as a Catholic, one of the things I'm afraid of is we now have online mass and I've seen virtual adoration. Are we also going to be doing virtualized confessions? I mean, there's a reason why we all go to church. It's to be part of the physical community. And, you know, we believe that you know, Jesus is the real presence in that Eucharist. We can't turn that into some virtualized invitation because it doesn't work that way. So I worry that if children become too attached to that virtual reality, they're going to really lose that connection to God and to the Christian community as well. Yeah, I wonder about that because you're right. It's like the community piece, even I know, you know, over the COVID quarantines, you know, I wound up spending a lot of time watching Catholic TV mass on Sundays. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, you're right. It's like, well, now it's just another television show for us to watch, you know, and so it becomes very disconnected. We don't have the community. We don't have the people physically present around us. But then part of me wonders, is that just sort of our stodgy old 20th century selves thinking? And I mean, the church has always evolved through time, through different cultures and technology and has adapted to so much. Is this just another one of those concepts that we're going to adapt? Like when we talk about community, maybe virtual community is community. I don't know. My personal opinion is that, no, we need to go to Mass. We need the physical presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Uh, the priest is not doing transubstantiation on our monitors. I mean, how would you even receive the Eucharist virtually? You, you wouldn't be able to. You have to be there in the physical presence. You need to be there. I was fortunate that our, our church really didn't close for very long, and, and I'm back at Mass. And I appreciate and I'm grateful to be able to receive the Eucharist and be there in community with my brothers and sisters. So as Christians, we're not to be afraid of death. In fact, that's that's the ultimate goal is, is to be able to be with our, our Father in heaven. And so being locked up and afraid is, is not that kind of hero mentality that we were meant to drive towards. We all have a mission. We all have this great adventure that we're supposed to be on. And we're supposed to be living in that divine life. And, and that's what we're, we're meant to do. That's what we're created to do. So we need to remember to uh, not be afraid. God will take care of us. COVID or no COVID, God's going to take care of us <laughs> and get back to church. You know, as a lawyer, it's my job to be devil's advocate and ask uh, these kind of rhetorical questions. But I think you're right about the community piece. You know, there is something that you cannot replace virtually, and maybe that shouldn't be replaced. And I do think that the church is going to have to still deal with this virtual technology situation. There probably is some sort of a middle ground somewhere. But uh, one of the things I, I share your worry about is if we teach our kids that this virtual community is their community, are, you know, are we doing them a major disservice because we no longer are giving them really human relationships now? Everything is disconnected and is negotiated by a computer or a screen or some other device instead of actual person-to-person -person contact. Yeah, there's a big difference in knowing someone in the physical world and knowing someone online. Our online profiles, we tend to only tell the good things or try to pretend and act out what we want to be instead of who we are. That might not be the greatest thing, you know, for people to be doing is uh, because you're, when you're making these connections with other people is 
are you connecting to a, a person as they really are, or are you connected to this, this virtualized personality that they have created for themselves online? And I think a lot of people are, I think they're also very lonely when, if all they have are online friends, I, I think that just is a prescription for just loneliness and um, because you really need those, those physical interactions with people. Yeah, and I think your your first point also ties into the loneliness because if we aren't actually connecting with people as our genuine selves, part of us knows that we're basically big fakes. We're just big imposters and that we don't have a genuine relationship then. What we have is sort of this made up pretend relationship. And that I think helps to breed loneliness um, because we never make, you know, you like you said, you never really do have somebody who gets to know you and love you as you are with all of your flaws. All they get is this sort of synthesized artificial version of you. But let me bring this back around to your Penury City trilogy, because I, I understand that you have written this series partly to grapple with the exact issues that we've been talking about today. Uh, tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that series. So I think first is uh, love, right? The definition of love, I think has been really, it's been really skewed over the years. And I think people have even lost the whole definition of love. But love is really, you know, the willing the good of another person for their own sake, not for your sake, but for theirs, and then to do something about it. So in order for you to actually love someone, you have to look at what is good for them and then try to help them achieve that good. And that usually requires some type of sacrifice of yourself to be able to help them. And so that was what, that's the main concept behind Penury City is, okay, can we take this definition of love? And if we extrapolate where we are today, the whole novel takes place in the year 2054. So it's some 30 years in the, into the future. If I look at all the patterns of what we are, of where we are today and extrapolate them out to that time period, what does it look like? And if you look at where we are today is we keep removing God from society. We've taken them basically out of our politics. We've taken them out of the public square. We've taken them out of family planning. We've taken them out of, I mean, just about every aspect of our lives. And when you keep removing God, you also remove the good and the love. And all you're left with is, well, the opposite of that, which is not so good. And you can see how the world has kind of gone down the wrong paths today. So I extrapolated that out even further to the extremes of what a world without God would look like. And that's basically that first volume is it takes us through and describes what that world looks like without God. And then we follow a couple of characters through that. Um, and one is, uh, his, his name is Dr. Saul Kreisch. And in the future, you're not allowed to procreate without the government's permission. And you have to pass these various tests, you know, genetic DNA profiles, all your health profiles, your physical profiles, all these things have to pass before you're able to have children. And most people are denied. And if you get pregnant, then the government has forced abortions. And so that's what this main character does is he does performs these forced abortions on people. And his person that he lives with, Janice, they want to have children and they're denied. And so then there's this rumor that floats around in this penury city world about this golden city where faith and freedom still exist. And so when they're denied, Janice goes and looks for this city. And for Saul, she was the only person who was basically had any goodness. She was his whole foundation and his anchor. And so he chases after her. And as he's try, you know, trying to find her and looking for this gold city, he ends up meeting someone who is of faith. And she's also traveling to the city. So they travel together. And then she starts to teach him about God and faith. 
Wow. No, it sounds really, it does sound fascinating. And you do, you wonder about where this is going to lead. And it's neat to see a visionary kind of who can, who has the technological chops to be able to describe it in a way that would also seem real to us. And it sounds like you really were able to hit a lot of excellent issues and make us think about where, where are we going? Where do we want to go? If folks want to get a hold of, of this series, where can they find it? You can get it at all the online retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy your books. You can also uh, you can go to my website. It's penurycity.com. It's being published by Wounded Crow Publishing, which is my own publishing company, so I can control the marketing message and, and how it actually gets marketed in, in the media. So either way, uh, I have um, also a companion book that goes along with it. So I, I wrote this companion book to explain the more deeper theological concepts, also my own writing journey of why I wrote this, the book and, and my journey through it. And you'd write this under a pen name of Thomas E., if I'm uh, not mistaken. Right, that's correct. Thomas E. Well, Thomas, uh, before we sign off here, do you, uh, do you have any parting words of advice for parents, teachers, grandparents who are kind of looking at their young people today, looking at all this technology? Maybe they're worried about it. Maybe they don't understand it. Any final words of encouragement for them? So the greatest inventions that were ever created was really for suffering man, right? To, to keep redirecting our efforts towards helping humanity and not just to create toys and games that satisfy everyone. One of the stories that I like is about the story of Edison and the light bulb, right? He tried over 900 different ways to find the right filament for to light the light bulb. One of the things that you don't hear of is, well, why did he do it? Why did he try so hard to make this light bulb work? And the reason was, is because when he was uh, younger, he used to look out the window and the people would go and light the street lights because they, you know, they used the candle in the street lights. And he would have to light them and then put them out. And he would watch these guys lighting these street lights in the snow, the cold, the rain at night. He's like, I need to do something to help these guys. I don't like seeing them suffer. So that's why he spent so much time and energy trying to figure out how can I make this light bulb work? <laughs> he wanted to eliminate that suffering. Of course, you put them out of all out of work, but. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that's uh, you know, the, the side effect of anything we do. And I guess that's also probably a lesson about what happens when you try to eliminate all of mankind's suffering. Uh, you know, suffering's part of life. I suppose it'll come up in another form. But right. uh yeah, fascinating. Thomas, uh, we'll definitely have to talk another time about more of this and more of your uh, Penury City uh, trilogy because it just sounds fascinating. And I really appreciate your time being on the show today. And thank you for, for your insight. Okay, well, thank you very much, Tony. Like I said, I'm grateful for being on today. In our entertainment segment today, I review a novel by Jacqueline Brown called The Light. It is the first book in a five-book series, also known as The Light Series. It's a dystopian novel, takes place in a near future, and it's really written for new adults or at least older teens. These books have a lot of difficult content in them that would probably be inappropriate for younger children, especially middle grade and elementary readers. The first book, The Light, starts with the premise 
that there is an electromagnetic pulse weapon that goes off on the eastern border of the United States, which sends society back to the 19th century, destroying our capability for electronics, technology, computers, vehicles. And the book focuses on a group of teenagers. Bria Ford is the main character and her three friends who are all stranded on a highway in the middle of the night in November when this EMP device goes off, leaving them in a really bad situation due to the weather. Thankfully, they are saved by a teen named Jonah Page and his sister, East. And Jonah and East take Bria and her friends home to their family. And the story progresses from there as kind of a survival story, not only as a story where you're surviving the odds against Mother Nature and the weather, freezing temperatures when you don't have heat, but also it's a survival story from some pretty evil neighbors who have a feud as civilization is crumbling without technology and all the things that hold civilization together right now, releasing some of the darker side of people. It's a story about forgiveness. It does delve into some pretty deep issues. Bria, the main character, considers herself an atheist when the novel begins. She's in an abusive relationship with a boyfriend, and she has some very dark secrets in her past that have caused her to feel unworthy of forgiveness and unworthy of a positive relationship with somebody really nice, such as this boy Jonah. The book also is about faith. We have Bria and her friends who are really um, either non-Christian or just nominally Christian. And then we have Jonah and his family, which is very Christian, very Catholic, actually. And so you see how Bria and her friends respond to this very close-knit Catholic family when they've come from some very difficult situations without God in their lives. So it's got a sweet romance in it. It's got a lot of suspense. Jacqueline Brown does a great job writing the stories, keeping the plot moving, keeping the characters real. It's not preachy, but there is a good amount of religion and faith in the stories, especially uh, Catholic faith. They are very much page turners that you really just can't put down because you have to find out what is going to happen next in this difficult, fast-moving environment. So if you're looking for a book for your older teens or college students or young adults that is going to really capture their imagination and keep them page-turning while also addressing some difficult issues and issues of faith and forgiveness, you do not want to miss The Light by Jacqueline Brown. That's all the time we have for the show today. We spoke with Thomas Nastek about the pitfalls and promise of technology for our youth, and I reviewed The Light, the dystopian novel for older teens and young adults by Jacqueline Brown. Again, this is Anthony Barone Colank, and this has been The Shepherd's Pie. If any of you listening today have a question for me or a topic you'd like to have us cover on the show, please drop me a line on my website at antonycolank.com. That's A-N-T-O-N-Y-K-O-L-E-N-C.com. Also, if you visit my website, you can learn more about my historical fiction series for kids, The Harwood Mysteries. 
I'll end as always with my wife's favorite scripture quote from Romans 8:28. We know that all things work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. May the Lord bless and keep you this week.